Are you an artist who sells their work online? If so, you may know how difficult it can be for potential collectors to really get a sense of how your artwork would look in their home. I know that when I managed an art studio, this was definitely a problem we ran into. But now, thanks to Canvi, this challenge is easy to overcome. All you have to do is upload your artwork, select one of over 500 room templates, and voila! Customers will see just how good your art will look on their wall. With tons of customizations that allow you to change wall colors, texture, and even room accessories, it's easy to match the aesthetic you're after. So, where can you use Canvi's room simulations? The real question is, where can't they be used? From the portfolio page of a website, to a shopping portal, to social media, the uses are endless. And for creatives using Etsy, Canvi has a built-in Etsy integration that allows users to publish their finished rooms straight to their store. Artists can also create a website directly in Canvi using a custom domain name to show off their artwork in a polished, professional manner. So, if you want to take your art to the next level and present yourself like a true professional, be sure to check out Canvi.com. That's C-A-N-V-Y.com. Give it a try with a free hobby account, and if you're hooked, upgrade to either a yearly or monthly plan. If you don't like it, no problem. You can cancel anytime and there's a 100% money back guarantee. It sounds cliche, and it totally is, but it's helpful to think of an artistic practice as a journey. When you zoom out and look at your work on a macro scale, you'll find that each piece is like a stop on that journey, representing points of view and interests that change over time. This is the Top Artist Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Barnes. As an artist myself, I'm always curious how a creative person navigates their way, balancing interests, outside pressures, life experiences, and instances of pure luck to produce work that is both meaningful and visually impactful. It's just one reason why I enjoy talking with our next guest, artist Benjamin Shine. For over a decade, Benjamin has been creating portraits using tool fabric. Although we might think of the mesh material as being free-flowing and hard to pin down, just imagine it on an elegant gown, Benjamin has learned to tame tool, to a degree, and create ethereal portraits of anonymous figures. Parts of the pieces are so meticulously crafted that we get a sense of the shading on an upper lip and the shadow under a nose. But beyond these engineered areas, Benjamin also lets tool do its thing and fall away from the face. With Tool as a constant in our conversation, we ended up tracing a bit of Benjamin's artistic journey and exploring how he found the material that has ultimately become his artistic voice. It's something that he uses as his visual language and it imbues his work and life with so much meaning. It can be a real challenge to find the medium that you like working in. And even when you do that, you have to ask yourself, how are you gonna use it? What are you gonna say with it? Through our chat, Benjamin tells us how he forged his path into creating work that's been exhibited around the world in both art galleries as well as storefronts of department stores. He'll also answer the questions that you, our listeners, have submitted in the Ask the Artist segment. Before we dive in, I wanted to let you know that you can watch a video version of this interview on the new Top Artist YouTube channel. There, you'll be able to see some of the incredible work that we discussed during the course of this episode. Just click the link in the show notes to take a look. Now, let's start our journey by hearing how an interest in fashion set the wheels in motion for Benjamin. I mean, I was always a, a very creative kid, you know, always painting and making things and, and all that stuff. But when I got to 15 or 16, we had to do a work placement and um, as part of a school thing. 
And so I ended up selecting to work with a little fashion company. I didn't actually like the idea of working with an artist. In fact, my whole sort of preconception of, of being an artist was pretty negative. I sort of heard the phrase struggling artist and I thought that doesn't sound appealing to me. Um, <laughs> but, you know, design seemed like a better route to go, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think I've, I've been inspired by watching a TV film. I never know, I can't never remember what this film was, but it was about a milliner and it was, she was creating hats and the whole film was how she turned this little hobby into something really fantastic and, and successful. And it, it sort of that, just straight after that, I thought, well, I'll, I can do that. I'll, I'll design a shirt. And I remember just designing a shirt, not knowing what the hell I was doing. But that was enough. It was the right time that we were making this decision about doing this work placement. So I chose fashion design to do that. And I honestly didn't know how to sew or do anything like that, but uh-huh. it seemed really interesting. So I did that. And the upshot from that little experience was that the company actually put my shirt designs on their range. So I did, you know, two weeks or something with them. And that was the result, which gave me a real boost. Yeah, that's really exciting for a kid. Yeah, that's right. So I sort of walked back into school with my own shirt designs. And, you know, I felt pretty great. And um, the next decision we had to make was what university do we want to apply for? You know, when you do art, you know, I was I always did well in my art studies and things. And we had to do a foundation course. You know, you just had to do that where you go and study all sorts of different yeah disciplines and then um yeah i decided to choose fashion design as the course but uh, i really think fashion design is such an amazing degree to do because it's not just about making clothes you know there's so many different disciplines that you get to practice doing that whether it's photography or staging or conceptual or construction part of it's like engineering Uh, yeah absolutely and so you kind of find what fits as you go through those three years and for me in the second year was when I sort of really began to get interested in that whole pattern cutting side of things and especially one piece pattern cutting just trying to figure out how to create a garment for one piece you know seam elimination finding interesting ways around the body and creating that kind of harmony within the garment because there's no room for error when you have one seam that you kind of have to wind around and get sleeves and trouser legs or whatever out of the one piece of like an origami type thing all the balance in the fabric has to be right so it really taught me about fabric manipulation and what the potential is for fabric to form in certain ways you know and understand how it can stretch and and be shaped Benjamin admits that he just didn't have that passion for fashion, although he did enroll in London's renowned Central St. Martin's fashion program for his Master of Arts degree. But his work wasn't so much fashion as it was a more conceptual take on the field. By identifying that his work was more sculptural in nature, he decided to travel down that road. Although looking back, it seems like a natural fit, it was hard for him to see that while making these crucial decisions. Yeah, at the time, you have no idea that it's natural. You're just worrying that you're not on the right course because I have this conversation a fair bit, but when you're starting off and you're on your degree, you kind of don't know anything else other than what you've already done. You know, you don't you can't see in the future, so you, you don't know how it's going to go, obviously. But yeah, so you're sort of, in my experience, I was thinking this is three years down the line in fashion. Now, surely this is what I must have to do in the future because it's kind of like you just invested three years or four years what what i really discovered two or three years later was that it was more a case of how i can react to the problem at hand and that brings it back to a 
sort of a creativity mindset rather than a specific fashion designer's mindset or something, which I think can easily occur as you go down that very formal route of education. If you're studying architecture or fashion design or industrial design, you start to think you have to think in a very specific way according to your market. Mm -hmm. But it was great when I left St. Martin's to then sort of open it back out and sort of think more broadly about just myself as a creative explorer. By thinking beyond fashion, particularly garments, this allowed Benjamin to approach fabric with a different perspective, and he was enthralled by Tool. Yeah, well, the first time I used Tool was when I was studying fashion design. I was at St. Martin's and I used to have to walk to the tube station to go there. And I'd walk down Brick Lane, which is a sort of a famous street in London, uh, filled with rather cheap fabric shops. And one of these shops had tulle that was, was packed floor to ceiling with tulle in the, in the window, all the different colors. And I used to just think, one day I've got to do something with that. I was just sort of mesmerized by the fact it came in every shade under the sun and that it seemed rather cheap as well, which was kind of handy at the time. So I think that maybe that was the seed that ended up, you know, growing later on. Tool is not the easiest fabric to work with. It's a bit wispy, and if you're trying to stitch it on a sewing machine, it's prone to shifting and snagging. Not something you want if you're working on a garment. But it's different in a sculptural context. In beginning to work with it, Benjamin discovered that there are so many characteristics that he absolutely loves about Tool. You can hear his admiration for it as he talks. First of all, okay, so it's, it's transparent, it's extremely lightweight, it's very sculptural. The more that you compress it, the actual stronger it gets. You know, a lot of people have asked me, you know, will it hold its shape and stuff like this? And it's amazing, you know, I mean, when, I'm, when I ship these things and when I even frame them, you know, I'm constantly turning the piece upside down and backwards and forwards and the material stays exactly where it is. So it's interesting. So the more you fold it, it actually creates some structure because it's just basically a mesh, a net. And also the heat, which I use of the iron, it has a really interesting effect. It kind of softens it as I'm working on it. But within a few seconds, it actually hardens harder than it was originally. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's like a very handy uh, component, the heat side of it. But, you know, in terms of like what I like to do conceptually with it, it offers quite a lot of interesting sort of properties. The main one being is this idea of like when I'm thinking about things moving from sort of a spiritual and a, to a superficial side of things, you know, the sort of material side and then this non-material side, which is what I love to explore with this. I'm looking at kind of a sculpture which is fully dense and realized with all its hard edges and everything that's sort of fading out into nothingness. That's something that the material really lends itself to because a single layer of tulle is basically 5% in existence, like visibility. It, it's one step away from nothing, mm -hmm. um, which I can't think of any other material that really offers that. Yeah. And obviously the more you fold it, um, the darker the tones get until you get to a point where it's absolutely solid color and you can't see through it. Mm -hmm. So that's a really key part. That idea of density and compression is the foundation for all the chill works that I do, whether they're image-based or sculptural forms. How long did it take you to develop these techniques? How much trial and error was involved as you worked with Tool to really learn how to manipulate it in such a successful way? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> And it's got a funny answer because it took me um, it took me three months to do the to do the very first 
piece that was a portrait and mm-hmm. it was it was funny just because I saw the potential of this idea I had a, a bit of chill in my studio and I saw it on the floor and I saw the pleats and the tones kind of like through it and I thought that could be amazing if it was a portrait or an image with these pleats sort of within it just as this ball of chill was was kind of showing me all these pleats in it mm-hmm. as, as the sun was kind of backlighting it yeah and um sort of within an hour or so I was already working on a piece trying to figure out how to do it and I was like stapling it to a board and I was just you know I was just holding it up in the air trying to imagine how I would even move the material around and how it would stick to a board how it would stay in one place or uh, would it yeah. be flattened or pressed behind glass so I did a lot of things very quickly probably within the space of an hour or, or two and then finally kind of figured out how to like you know use the, the iron to like bond it basically to a board and, and now I was off and away yeah so the very first piece I did I it kind of looked like it was going to be done you know within a couple of days I could see within the first day I thought oh this is great this is this will be done in no time and then three months later I was putting the final touches to it going right this is if I'm going to do this this is going to be it's not going to make sense how am I going to produce any work doing this technique right. it's ridiculous <laughs> but what happened was is that I think it's like it's like anything when you first attempt something, you're you're sort of excited, but there's an element of like uncertainty, and you ju- you don't really know what you're doing, right? And you don't want to mess it. There's part of me I didn't want to mess it up, especially of that one. So I'd kind of gone to the point where I'd gone too far to not care. I was now caring a bit too much, and so I didn't <laughs> want to mess it up. And actually, I, I went down a, a weird road with it in that I just kept making this thing increasingly more detailed so just when I got it to a point of looking kind of great like that first day I just carried on working on it so it'd be the difference between going from a sort of a slightly abstract portrait to an extremely realistic portrait (laughs) and that's what I ended up doing because I I suppose I just intrinsically wanted to know how detailed can I go with this thing Mm -hmm. it's a very different technique to what I do now because I was basically pleating this uh, chill into minute pointillist dots. I mean, there were probably three or four millimeter tiny little pleats. Oh, wow. And there were just millions of them. So it was kind of like quite a feat to do. And it was impressive. You know, a lot of people who saw it, you know, they thought it was just a graphite or a pen drawing or something. But and then, you know, they discovered it's chill. And you're like, wow, that's insanely detailed. By working or perhaps overworking the material, Benjamin had lost the characteristics that make Tool, well, Tool. It was too transformed. It's sort of the opposite of what we think of when we're first learning to use a certain material, is that you'll start out pretty basic, just getting a feel for it, and then gradually create work that's more complex. Benjamin flipped that concept on its head. He had to dial it back and really consider the material, not just what it could do, but the associations we have with the fabric too. I think I had to do that training. You know, they talk about getting 10,000 hours in to really, you know, Mm -hmm. that was certainly what I would have done in those first few portraits. And it's funny, I only kind of used, as I was doing it, I was like uh, making little samples of the different marks I was creating with this because, you know, I do something slightly differently. And it was it was nerve wracking because I do something go, that is not to replicate was the problem. I was like, I've done it once. How, How do I do it again? And I was conscious, you know, was I was I handling it? Was my left hand doing the same thing I was doing with the right? And it was such minute, silly little things. But every time I did something, something else was happening. And so it was a bit disconcerting to sort of think, how do I familiarize myself? How do I create some sort of habit or something that makes me work in the same way with this material that's just, it's kind of hard to control, Chul. It's probably, you know, if you ask any seamstress, 
you know, it's like the worst material to use because it's just slippery and difficult. I just kept finding all these different things you could do with it, depending on how I manipulated it. And I wasn't really totally conscious and realized I had to become conscious of each of these, like I could create almost like an alphabet of, you know, marks that I could then draw on and go, I need this for that, you know, for an eye, I need this technique for the cheeks, I need that technique for, the, you know, wispy. There, there were, I just gave them little names like wisp, dot, yeah. scrunch and whatever. And I guess I probably had at least a dozen or so that were the core ones. But in the very first ones I did, they were all just the dots. So they were just one type of technique just throughout. Mm -hmm. And so now I only use that entire technique just for the eyes. Everything else are different elements, which are much more gestural and free-flowing. Gift giving is an art. And thanks to the internet, it's easier than ever to find that perfect present for someone. With so much to choose from, how do you find that special something without hours of searching? Well, that's where My Modern Med Store comes in. Since 2017, we've been curating the best creative products for makers around the world. Whether you're looking for a gift for an artist, architect, space lover, or anywhere in between, we have you covered. One of my all-time favorite things in my Modern Met store is a planter that defies gravity. Yes, really. It's the stylish, life-levitating planter, and it's perfect for all you minimalists out there. It has an angular white pot that hovers over a rich oak base, all thanks to magnets. But if you're lacking a green thumb, there's plenty more in our store to check out. As a listener of Top Artist, you can get 10% off your entire purchase when you use the code TOPARTIST10 at checkout. Again, that's Top Artist 10 for 10% off everything in my modern med store. Happy shopping. If you're open to it, your material will talk to you. It will offer an unconventional collaboration. Benjamin has previously said that in using tool, two stories emerge within a portrait, one that he's created and one that the fabric tells. So I started doing these in 2008, 2009. And it was 2012, I did a piece, which was a large scale image of these two hands coming out. And it was for Design Week in London. It was an installation. So that was the first time they weren't in a frame, which was really nice. You know, I thought that was really interesting. And then uh, around the uh, outside of the hands, I just left it very haphazard and just let the fabric be free flowing all that. And yes, at that point, I looked at it and I thought, I like the free flowing more than I like the hands. And <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that's actually where I need to go. I need to try and keep it as if the image is very subtly um, occurring from within that free-flowing fabric. You know, that, that would be a really nice. So that was it. Yeah, that was the moment I sort of noticed that. It just reminded me because, you know, when I was at St. Martin's, I had an, an amazing lecturer called Louise Wilson. Who, who sadly passed away a few years ago, but she was a force to be reckoned with. She was a bit like a James Bond villain character in the <laughs> sense that you would walk in, you know, petrified mainly because the person who'd walked in before you is coming out crying. Um, <laughs> but you'd go in and she'd be behind her desk all in black with rings on every finger. And the only thing she didn't have was a little cat on her lap. But <laughs> other than that, you'd walk in and just it'd be smoke filled because she was smoking and, and she, you'd have to present what you were doing in a few minutes flat. But one of the things she said to me, which I, I really never forget, was that it's so important to sort of look at what you're doing while you're working on it in the sense that you may have an idea of where you want to go with something. But mm -hmm. if you don't take the time to keep looking at what you're doing, you, you might miss something that takes you off in a, in, a, in a better direction. Yeah. And so, yeah, that moment sort of occurred, you know, as we were just saying, just then with that particular piece. And I, and I saw something that I didn't expect to see. Interesting. So then at that point, once you kind of realized that, 
how did that shift pieces afterwards? Yeah, so from there, I, I had been doing quite a lot of these portraits, and there were two commissions as well. So in that sense, people had been, you know, wanting to to, to have these pieces because they looked realistic, and, and that's all fine. But seeing this idea of this kind of like break away into a very abstract, free-flowy thing, it got me thinking about taking it away from that really high detail, making it somewhat anonymous, and also open up this whole idea of a sort of a spiritual element to it, which was amazing because it actually kind of took me down a road on that side too, whether it was meditation, doing yoga, slowing down. All of those things were something that I adopted in my life and began to occur in my work as well. So it was really interesting how the whole thing happened around that time. So what is it like then to work with a collaborator that doesn't have a traditional input? You know, we think of if you're working with someone else, they can give their ideas and opinions. You're kind of having to sense the tool in a way and respond to it. How do you navigate that, this sort of unusual collaboration? I, I think it's uh, part of it is also to do with the limitation factor, which I absolutely love. I was really into one piece pattern cutting way way back when I first started studied fashion and that stuck with me all, all the way through I, I didn't mention that I did a lot of product design as well early on and all of those most of those were about finding the potential out of something singular uh, whether it was a multifunctional garment that, that you know looked like one thing that turned into converted into other things or whether it's like the, the flows that I do with the tool which is basically what we were just talking about these kind of faces that appear out of one piece of fabric there's no cutting or anything so the collaborative side is working with that limitation and sort of noticing the potential of what it can offer and I don't know for me that's poetic it's like a real sense of harmony that occurs in that whole process because you're trying to create something that, that also looks natural and is not forced so it's any way that can happen is if you really pay attention to letting the fabric do what it wants you know, when I'm making those pieces, there's many versions that don't look right. And so you have to keep finding that flow until it does and then lock it in. Working with a material that has a mind of its own requires a lot of give and take. It requires Benjamin to be in the moment, focused on the task at hand to observe what he is doing and how that affects different parts of the piece and its overall appearance. This idea of being fully present, fully engaged in a task, is a mindfulness technique that informs both the construction of his work as well as how we view these portraits. The pieces have an ethereal sensibility to them, like they're ever-changing, just as how it's said in meditation that no two breaths are the same. Yeah, well, that whole approach, that sort of mindfulness and meditation, it's not only the subject of these pieces, which is, you know, as, as you know, these faces are all well, they're anonymous and they've also got the eyes closed, which I think is a big distinction from a portrait as such. As soon as you, as soon as you create a portrait and, and you've got eyes and, and things that make it instantly recognizable as an individual, as soon as you close your eyes, that, that actually seems to shut that off and disappear, which I think, well, that's what I find is important for these because I don't want people focusing on that. You just want that sense of calm sense of inner contemplation yeah so as much as it's visually referencing that it is actually doing that as I'm working on them too it's a very meditative process mm -hmm. so you know it's just working within that one piece and moving the fabric and guiding it and letting it become what it needs to become now we're turning it over to you our listeners for ask the artist we asked you to send us your questions for Benjamin and got some great responses 
if there was another type of material that you could use, what would you like to try? When I left St. Martin's, the first year out, I did an exhibition, which was all fabric, mixed media, textiles. So it was just a whole load of different materials. So I like all sorts of materials. Is, is there one that I would use other than this? I mean, there's, there's stuff I'm doing at the moment with resin as well, actually, which is kind of like merging the two things together, which is giving it a, a totally different look. But no, I can't say there's a, a material I'd use. I have actually done a piece last year, uh, which was out of rope, which I spent a few years working on. That was kind of interesting. It was just unraveling the rope and then creating images from all the fine strands. And that was quite a process. Yeah, I feel like it would be hard to find a material because tool has these characteristics where it's kind of smoky. I feel it would be hard to find something that is as kind of compelling and challenging. Yeah, you know, one of the things I'm sort of hardwired to do, having gone through that design route, is find things that are innovative, you know, as well. That's a real big part of like my drive, if you like. And if I can't see the potential for it to be adding something new or different, you can't really get excited about it. And yeah, I haven't seen anyone do anything with Tool, so that's why that I pursued that. But yeah, there are other ideas that I have explored with with other materials, but then you see other it's out there already in some way, some similar things. Yeah. To be honest, uh, one it's a bit random, but throughout this whole pandemic, I've actually been saving all the plastic um, packaging. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've saved the whole everything that we've used, and I've got this these towers of containers, and not that we use that many, but there's at least four things that we that that we use in our in our household, and so I've kept all of those, and I'm trying to see if I can find an innovative way to use those in a, in an elegant way. Yeah. So yeah, it's kind of different, but yeah, so that's something I'm thinking about material-wise. You're so well-known for these tool portraits. How do you build on what you already created? How do you kind of keep it interesting for yourself? Um, I, well, I have about, so I have a, in my office, I have a board, the whole back wall is this kind of system that I designed. It's got 24 plastic folders, you know, see-through. And each of those folders, I put ideas in and they just build up as I, you know, get them done. Yeah. Um, the, the only reason I mention this is because it's important to be able to see what ideas you have when you have them and to keep them alive. You know, I mean, people do that in all kinds of way, a cork board or wh whatever. One of the ways I used to do it was I just used to have a file, like files, just put them into files and then they'd be stacked on a table and then they'd just be lost under the files and you couldn't see them. So this system I've had now for, I don't know, 12 years or so. And it's, it's really handy. So on there, I'm always seeing the ideas that I've got. And there's a lot on there just with Tule. I've only done probably half of what I, I've got, you know, to, to explore. One of the latest ones I was really happy to develop this year was these flux sculptures, which, um, as I mentioned, I'm using resin. And that takes, you know, instead of being image-based, they suddenly become sculptural three-dimensional forms i don't know over the years i've done you know these very high, high, highly detailed portraits and these uh, flows and installations and now these kind of sculptures so there's probably i can probably say four i've done some other ones which were like these mandalas so there's maybe five things that i've kind of like dabbled with over the last 12 years 
And there's probably the same number again, which I've, I have dabbled with, but they're just not ready. Like the flux took me three years to figure out. So they, unfortunately, they just take forever to, to like get right. Well, you seem very patient. You know, you've been working <laughs> with one material for 12 years. So yeah, you're primed to uh, continue developing it more. Well, we have one more question for Ask the Artist. Um, is there a feature of, within your tool portraits that you find particularly challenging? Yeah, it's funny because the eyes, they are challenging. They generally, they more just take a long time to do, like, you know, mm -hmm. 10 or 15 hours to do an eye, basically. But the, the more difficult parts are the really subtle gradient tones of a cheek or how the chin and the neck meet. Because with the pleats, it's how the pleats work is where they cross over and stuff. The crossing over creates a, an intersection of a darker tone, mm -hmm. which usually I'm needing that to reference a particular feature or something. It's got it, it's darker for a reason. So it's like you've got to be careful that although you want it to look haphazard and, and sort of mistakes you know, in inverted commas are running throughout the whole piece so that it doesn't look absolutely perfect. Yeah. You also don't want one of those to look like a nostrils appeared on the forehead, <laughs> you know, something like that. It, you know, and it happens all the way through. I'm making, there are all these mistakes that are too much of a mistake and I've got to work out how to eliminate them. But again, like out of one piece, it's, you know, it gets difficult towards the end because you're fine tuning, but all the fabric's kind of in place. So you've kind of got to be careful. As I wrapped up our time with Benjamin, I asked him the question we've been asking every artist we've interviewed for the second season of the Top Artist Podcast. What impact does he hope his work would have? I think it's just to sort of slow down. And um, yeah, if, if, if that story of, of meditation and mindfulness can somehow be taken on board by people who see my work and, and, and think about it that way, that would be fantastic. Because I think that's what we need more of. You know, obviously the world is, is moving in incredibly fast pace and we're being distracted by so many things and, and we sometimes forget to um, think about ourselves and what's most important for our own well-being. Thank you to Benjamin Shine for speaking with us and sharing how one material can make such an impact. If you'd like to follow Benjamin online, the best place to find him is on Instagram, where he's at Benjamin Shine Studio. He's working on releasing prints of his tool portraits as part of his first ever print series, so make sure you watch out for that soon. We'll be back in two weeks when my co-host Sam Pierce will be here talking with another amazing creative who is making an impact with their work. If you like what you hear, please tell a friend or two and leave us a review. And make sure you're following us on Instagram at Top Artist Podcast or subscribe to our newsletter by visiting podcast.mymodernmat.com. And remember, we're also releasing new episodes on the Top Artist YouTube channel, so be sure to check that out. In the meantime, you can get your fix of art and culture at mymodernmat.com. If you're a member, you'll get an ad-free reading experience and other great perks while helping to support the site. Just click the membership link at the top of the screen.